1: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Baltimore County, Maryland. The name Baltimore comes from Cecil Calvert, the Baron Baltimore from the town of Baltimore and County Cork, Ireland. In 1632, he received a charter from King Charles I to become the first proprietor of the newly formed colony of Maryland by the way, which was named after the king's wife, Henrietta Maria. The official founding of Baltimore County came in 1659, the sixth of the now 23 counties in the state of Maryland. Although the county once included the city of Baltimore, the city separated itself from the county on July 4, 1851 and became an independent city. As one of the 13 original colonies, Maryland was the location of a number of monumental events in the history of our country. The first dental school in the world was founded in Baltimore in 1840. The first telegraph line in the world was established between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore in 1844. And Baltimore was home to the first Black-owned shipyard in the United States, the Chesapeake Marine Railway and Dry Dock Company. But in 1984, the brutal murder of a nine-year-old girl set in motion the events that would lead to another notable first in Baltimore County. But this one was born of tragedy and despair.
2: On the morning of July 25, 1984, 10-year-old Christian and his friend, 7-year-old Jack, who went by Jackie, were fishing at a pond in a wooded area behind the Fontana apartment building. By 11 a.m., Christian and Jackie had not caught any fish, but they had just caught a snapping turtle. They were playing with the turtle and didn't see the man who had been walking through the woods. He came up to the boys and asked them what kind of turtle they'd found, so the boys chatted with him about the turtle. Shortly after this, nine-year-old Don Hamilton walked by and stopped to talk to them. Dawn had just completed the third grade and lived in the Fontana apartments with her father, and they shared this apartment with another family, Mr. and Mrs. Helmick, and their two children. Dawn's parents had actually recently separated, and her mother lived in a town about 10 miles east. Now, at around 11 a.m. that morning, Mrs. Helmick sent Dawn out to look for her cousin Lisa. This is when Dawn had come across Christian and Jackie fishing at the pond. She asked the boys if they would help her look for her cousin, but the boys refused because they wanted to keep fishing. However, the man who was with them offered to help Don, and the two walked off together. Now, Mrs. Helmick, the woman who shared the apartment with the Hamiltons, called the police and reported Don missing at 11.30 a.m. when Don's cousin showed up at the apartment without her. About 100 police officers, canine units, and police trainees immediately went to the wooded area behind the Fontana apartments to search for Don. You know, Kath, I was really surprised by how quickly Mrs. Helmick reported Don missing, Usually, you know, people wait for a few hours to see if the kid is missing or if they're going to turn up somewhere.
1: I was surprised at the same thing and then how quickly the police mobilized. Agreed. Very impressive.
2: With all of these trained search personnel, it was actually Don's father, 32-year-old Thomas Hamilton, who found the first clue. He spotted her shorts and underwear hanging from a tree limb several feet above his head. Mr. Hamilton called out to officers to point out the clothes. And two officers came over and began searching the thick brush that was surrounding this tree. That is where they found Dawn's body three hours after she was reported missing. She was partially clothed, wearing just a blouse, socks, and shoes, and was face down in the dirt. She was just a few feet off a pathway, but it was overgrown and rarely used. And near Dawn's head was a large piece of concrete with what looked like a bloodstain.
1: After Dawn was reported missing, but before they found her body, police made contact with Christian and Jackie, and these two boys told detectives about the man who talked to them before leaving with Dawn. The boys described him as being in his late 20s or early 30s, tall and skinny, with blonde curly hair, a dark complexion, and a mustache. Sounds like you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) They also said he was wearing a white Ocean Pacific OP t-shirt with red and orange stripes. After Don's body was found, detectives knocked on more than a hundred doors in and around the apartment complex, asking everyone if the boy's description of the man matched anyone they knew. At that point, police were still working with the boys on a sketch that they could release to the public. The older boy was 10-year-old Christian, And he worked with an officer to come up with a composite using an identikit.
2: Kath, remember using the kits what they did is a sketch artist would work with the boys and they would show them different shapes of faces. Right. And then they would show them different hair colors and different hairstyles. And it was always like this better one, better two. Right. You know, in terms of eye color and everything like that. So it wasn't that they were actually describing the man to the police sketch artist. They were working off of. Right. Reformed what, examples. Did
1: his eyebrows look like this or did they look like this? Which actually is kind of genius. Yeah. If you're trying to describe something, it would be very hard. Three days after her murder, Baltimore County police released a composite sketch of the man they believed killed Dawn Hamilton.
2: Baltimore County medical examiner Dr. Dennis Smith conducted the autopsy. He found that Dawn's skull was fractured and her neck had a patterned abrasion, which they believed was from the sole of a shoe. She was also sexually assaulted. We are not getting into those details. Nobody needs to know them. It's too sad. Her death was ruled a homicide and was a result of blunt trauma to the head and strangulation. Within three days after the release of the composite sketch of the suspect, two people came forward and said they had seen a man matching that description in the wooded area the day of Don Hamilton's murder. Donna Ferguson told police she saw nine-year-old Don talking with a man near the woods at approximately 10.30 a.m. that day. James Keller told police he was driving on a road that bordered the wooded area and saw a man matching the suspect's description standing on the side of the road. The police also received many calls to their tip line. It was in excess of 500, but one of them stood out. It was an anonymous caller who told the police that the sketch looked like a man named Kirk and gave the name of the furniture store where he worked. The store was located just one mile from where the murder took place. Kirk was then added to their list of potential suspects. Two weeks
1: later, in the early morning hours of August 9, 1984, Kirk Noble Bloodsworth was arrested for the murder of Don Hamilton. Bloodsworth grew up in Cambridge, Maryland, about 90 miles south of Baltimore County. He was 22 years old and an honorably discharged Marine, and he was a champion discus thrower actually in high school and the Marine Corps who worked in a furniture store and as a fisherman. He had no prior convictions or contact with the police, not even a parking ticket. He was denied bail by Judge Gerald Wittstadt, who told him at the time that a conviction could bring him the ultimate punishment. It could be death. It could be life in prison. So as it turns out, a few days before Bloodsworth was arrested, his wife, Wanda, filed a missing persons report. They had been married for a few months and living in Baltimore County and Wanda became concerned when Bloodsworth did not come home for a couple nights. Based on the information from the missing persons report, including the fact that her husband's name was Kirk and he worked at a furniture store, Detective Robert Capel tracked Bloodsworth to his hometown of Cambridge two weeks after the murder. So the day before he was arrested, Bloodsworth agreed to go to the local police station in Cambridge and speak with Detective Capel. The conversation, as you can imagine, focused on Bloodsworth's activities on the day Dawn was murdered. Bloodsworth had a hard time remembering his exact whereabouts, but said he had never been to the area near the murder scene. He also told the detective that after picking up his paycheck, nine days after the murder, he took the bus to Cambridge.
2: Prior to concluding the interview, Detective Capel took two Polaroids of Bloodsworth. When the detective returned to Baltimore County, he used one of the pictures in a photo array that he showed to Christian and Jackie. These are, again, are the two little boys at the pond. Christian identified Bloodsworth, but Jackie was unable to make a positive identification. Now, based on Christian's positive identification, Detective Capel obtained an arrest warrant for Bloodsworth. He returned to Cambridge the following day, arrested Bloodsworth, and then interviewed him for a second time. The detective once again asked Bloodsworth about his activities on the day of the murder, July 25, 1984. Bloodsworth reiterated his statements from the day prior. He was unsure of his precise whereabouts, but he was sure that he had never been to the area where Don was murdered. Five days later, Detective Capel put together a police lineup. Christian came into the station and looked at the six men, but did not make an immediate identification from the lineup. However, immediately afterward, Christian told Detective Capel that he knew the whole time that it was number six, which was Kirk Bloodsworth's number in the lineup, but Christian was too scared to say anything. He was afraid that the six men on the other side of the glass would hear his voice, and so the man who he identified would be able to tell it was him because it was a little kid's voice, which I can totally see. I'd be scared. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Being 13? Oh. Well, he was 10, so probably more scared. <laughs> <laughs> the two people who came forward after seeing the composite sketch also participated in the lineup. Remember, Cat, these are the two people who told the detective that they saw Bloodsworth in the area the morning she was murdered.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Both identified number six, Kirk Bloodsworth, as the person they saw on the day of Dawn's murder. When seven-year-old Jackie attended the lineup on that same day, he identified the man in the third position as the man who spoke to them. Not Bloodsworth, who, as we just mentioned, was in the sixth position. Trial began on Monday, March 4th,
1: 1985, almost eight months after nine year old Dawn Hamilton was murdered. Because the autopsy revealed that she was killed after she was sexually assaulted, it meant the murder was committed in the course of a felony and the state sought the death penalty against Kirk Bloodsworth. The prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial and essentially consisted of a series of witnesses who could either place Bloodsworth in the wooded area on the day of the murder or would testify that Bloodsworth spoke to them about details of the murder the police had not released to the public. Detective Robert Capel testified that he responded to a missing persons call placed by Bloodsworth's wife, which led him eventually to his initial meeting with Bloodsworth in Cambridge. Detective Capel also testified about his efforts at a photo lineup and an in-person lineup and explained that in the in-person lineup, Christian did not identify Bloodsworth, but he told the detective immediately afterwards he knew it was Bloodsworth. He was just afraid. And Jackie identified the wrong individual. Detective Capel also testified that he returned to Cambridge the day after his first interview with Bloodsworth with a warrant for his arrest. During the initial interview, Capel told jurors that he took a pair of young girls' underwear and placed them in front of Bloodsworth. He said Bloodsworth reacted to this by claiming that he did not hurt the girl, and Bloodsworth also mentioned a bloody rock. The detective told the jurors that only a few officers and the murderer knew about the rock, and Bloodsworth was unable to explain how he knew about it. The prosecution also called an FBI footprint expert to the stand. Agent William Heilman III showed jurors a three-foot-high blowup of a bruise with a herringbone pattern that was found on Don's neck. The prosecution posited that the pattern corresponded to the soles of tennis shoes taken from Bloodsworth's apartment. However, Agent Heilman testified that he could find no marks linking the bruise conclusively to Bloodsworth's shoes. He told the jury he could only conclude that the bruise might have been from Bloodworth's shoes or any of hundreds of thousands of other shoes with the same design.
2: You know, Kath, I was so surprised to see that the prosecution brought him up to testify.
1: I know, but at least he told the truth.
2: Well, no, absolutely. As an FBI agent, you would expect that. But at what point did the prosecution go, "Mm, maybe this this isn't helpful? (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah. Now 11-year-old Christian testified that Bloodsworth was the man who spoke to him when he was fishing at the pond and then left with Dawn. Now 8-year-old Jackie took the stand. Remember, he's the boy who was unable to identify Bloodsworth in a photo array and picked the wrong man in the lineup. Now he tells the jury when he and his mom got home after this lineup, he told her that he was scared so he identified the wrong man and that he knew it was number six all along. Strangely, Kath, it was not until three weeks after that lineup that Jackie's mom actually reached out to the police to let Detective Capel know what had happened.
1: I find that so bizarre.
2: I do, too. That was weird. But here's the odder thing. <laughs> okay <laughs> do we have a
1: sea lion thing as well we do <laughs> here's the stranger thing
2: at trial when jackie was asked to identify bloodsworth in court he was not able to do so
1: maybe he didn't recognize him without his op shirt on Ooh,
2: very true <laughs> you remember op shirts obviously Oh, obviously op pro surf contest in huntington beach totally. every year they were so popular but i was also wondering was he wearing dolphin shorts with them <laughs> Those were popular at the same time.
1: Way back in the day when I backpacked through Europe with my sister and your sister, the only thing that was stolen from me were a pair of OP socks. (laughs)
2: Isn't that funny? That is funny. Are you sure my sister wasn't the one who stole it? (laughs) She came back with them. I just assumed she bought them there.
1: (laughs) You know, speaking of dolphin shorts, it was so funny when I was playing soccer back in the day and our uniforms switched to where we were all wearing dolphin shorts. My mom was so mad because the shorts were expensive and they were so immodest
2: she's not wrong no she's not wrong but i think it's fine when the girls wore dolphin shorts men should never have been allowed to wear dolphin shorts that's a freaking high crime (laughs) there's nobody wants to see
1: that no it's like speedos (laughs) exactly dolphin shorts and speedos should be
2: illegal saved for your own backyard right (laughs) (laughs)
1: nothing else if you're a man wearing dolphin shorts or speedos at the beach you're doing it for all the wrong reasons (laughs) okay so back to the story The prosecution calls James Keller and Donna Ferguson. These are the two people who testified they saw Bloodsworth in the area of the murder on the day of the murder. They also call Nancy Hall. Ms. Hall also testified that she saw Bloodsworth in the early morning hours on the day of the murder. She took part in an in-person lineup and was able to identify Bloodsworth as the man she saw. There were also three additional witnesses from the defendant's hometown of Cambridge. Tina Christopher, who was the defendant's friend, testified that she had a conversation with him on the day he was interviewed by Detective Capel in Cambridge.
2: But it was interesting, Kath, because the way she was talking at trial, it was kind of like a rambling stream of consciousness. She was like, well, he talked about what the little girl was supposed to be wearing and then things that went on in July. And then he went on and on and on. And then he told her that he and another guy were on this beach and this girl came up to them and asked him to help her. But the other guy supposedly took her off somewhere. It wasn't him. It was very strange that, again, she was brought up to testify. It was not a very coherent testimony.
1: And so she was cross-examined and the defense attorney basically said, hey, did he ever tell you who the other guy was? And she's like, no. And she also admitted that he only mentioned the little girl once. Basically, the defense attorney brought out the fact that this woman was not paying attention to the conversation, and she was trying to conform her recollection as to what she knew of the allegations against him. Exactly. The defense counsel also asked if during her conversation with Bloodsworth, did he ever mention anything about a rock? And she said, no, he didn't mention anything about a rock. So basically, this witness was a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Another Tina, Tina Furbush.
1: (laughs) How would you like that last name?
2: I would not like that last name. Yeah,
1: no. Furbush. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay, so
2: we're not going to use it. We're just going to call her Tina number two. Exactly. We're like 15 year old boys. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) So Tina number two was another friend from Cambridge, and she testified that she had a conversation with Bloodsworth after he had met with Detective Capel, in which he said he was a suspect in the rape and murder of a little girl in Baltimore. Tina number two told the jurors that he also talked about this guy who raped this little girl and something about a bloody rock and some underwear that was down at the police station that was supposed to scare him. She also told the jurors that Bloodsworth said he planned to seek psychiatric care for something he did. So Tina number two also testified that Bloodsworth told her the little girl was in some wooded area by some water and that the little girl had asked for him to help find her friend. Another witness, Rose Carson, testified that Bloodsworth came to Cambridge on August 3rd. This is nine days after Don Hamilton was murdered and asked her if he could spend the night at her house. She told the jury that Bloodsworth said that he was going to check himself into a psychiatric facility the next day because he had done something really terrible and he was afraid that he and his wife would not get back together because of it. Rose also testified that Bloodsworth said he was a suspect in the rape and murder of a little girl. This conversation took place on a Sunday, three days before Kirk Bloodsworth was arrested.
1: The defense brought five witnesses to the stand who placed Kirk Bloodsworth at home at the time Don was murdered. His mother in law, brother in law, and three of his housemates testified that he was at home between 10 a.m. and noon, which is when the coroner believed the killing took place. Bloodsworth took the stand in his own defense. He testified that he did not kill Don Hamilton and had never been to the apartments where the Hamiltons lived or the wooded area behind it. He also denied that he told two of the witnesses he was going to seek psychiatric care for something he had done. He testified that the something bad that he told his friends about was that he left Baltimore and left his wife to go back to Cambridge. And he broke his promise to his wife that he would take her out for a salad at Taco Bell.
2: Now, Kath, this wasn't just a salad. The way he explained this was that a taco salad had just been added to the Taco Bell menu. And he was pumped up. She was pumped
1: up. I totally understand the excitement of adding food to menu. Like (laughs) I remember when chicken fajita pita was added to Jack in the Box, and I was like, score. That is so
2: random. Oh, I was
1: totally addicted to them for the longest time. I also remember when Chunky Candy Bars came out and how excited I was for that. They have Um,
2: raisins in them. I know, but I didn't
1: realize that as a kid. And actually, it was a Chunky Candy Bar that led to my life of crime. But I'm not going to tell that story. We'll save it for another podcast. podcast. (laughs) It's a horrible, like, traumatizing story. But anyway.
2: (laughs) There will be tears. There will be sniffles. We're just (laughs) warning you now.
1: Took me years to process.
2: (laughs) But Kath, here's really what happened. When Bloodsworth took the stand, he told the jury how much his life had changed since he left the Marine Corps. Instead of his structured life in the military where he was doing great things, he now drifted from one low-paying job to another. He lived in a house with his wife and five other housemates. He smoked marijuana every single day. They never did anything. Nobody ever had enough money. He always just made enough money to pay the bills. He and his wife were constantly fighting. And this is a wife he'd only been married to for a couple of months, but he'd only actually known her for a couple months more than that. And then his wife's mother would come over frequently and call him bad things.
1: Well, it's like he was floating the boat for like
2: seven people. Exactly. On his part time jobs. Right. Really, at the end of the day, he just wanted to go back to Cambridge. You know, as we mentioned, that's where he was from. It's actually where he had met his wife, Wanda, but she was from Baltimore County. So after they'd been married just a really short time, she's like, I don't like this place. It's too rural. I'm going home. So she took off and went north. And after a few weeks, he's like, she's my wife. I've got to go, too. So he joins her in Baltimore County. But just like she did not like Cambridge, he did not like Baltimore County. So this is actually just nine days after the murder. He decides that the time was then to make this big change. So he went and got his paycheck from his employer he did not tell his wife or any of their friends in the house because he knew they'd fight him on it he was the source of income you know all that kind of stuff and so he just took off for cambridge but what really kind of nagged at him the whole time he was going down there is that that was the night he had promised to take his wife to taco bell to get the salad and he was afraid that the fact that he went back on his word would mean his wife would not forgive him and the marriage would be over
1: so cap these two witnesses who testified against him were actually friends of his from cambridge from his hometown who said he was going to seek psychiatric help. And he said, no, I never told anyone I was seeking psychiatric help. What he told them was that he was sick of being a stoner and wanted to go to a drug rehab, not a psychiatric facility.
2: On March 9th, 1985, eight months after Don Hamilton was killed, the jury reached its verdict. After three hours of deliberations, the jury of eight women and four men found Kirk Bloodsworth guilty of first-degree murder, rape, and sexual offense. Friends of Don Hamilton's family in the courtroom cheered when the verdict was read. Two weeks after the guilty verdict, Judge J. William Hinkle sentenced Kirk Bloodsworth to death for Don's murder. He also added two consecutive life terms for the convictions of first-degree rape and first-degree sexual offense. Judge Hinkle said that in his consideration, he placed a heavy weight on the nature of the offenses and said the attack was committed on the most helpless of citizens. Bloodsworth was sent to the Maryland Penitentiary where he was put on death row.
1: Kath, Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food.
2: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
1: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
2: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. We're crazy. A little <laughs> bit.
1: So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com KillerD and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash KillerD. Defense counsel immediately filed an appeal, and the following year, the Maryland Court of Appeals reversed Bloodsworth's conviction and remanded the case for a new trial after finding his rights were violated in his first trial. Bloodsworth's appeal covered several areas, but the Court of Appeal basically ruled on one issue. During the trial, his attorneys filed a discovery motion, which is very common, and it requests all exculpatory material requesting the names, addresses, physical descriptions of any persons other than the defendant who were arrested or otherwise taken into custody by police or prosecution as possible suspects in the case. Prosecutors withheld a police report that implicated a newspaper delivery man who was in the area at the time of the killing. Now, Kath, I thought this was so interesting because in the Court of Appeal opinion, it basically says... Somewhere between the penalty phase of the trial and the sentencing phase of the trial, Bloodsworth's attorney became aware that he did not have all the exculpatory evidence. And I have no idea how he got the police report, and the court does not explain how. So what happened was the prosecution failed to produce all information on a potential suspect named Richard Gray. Gray delivered newspapers and was discovered wandering in the woods in the vicinity of the crime shortly before Don Hamilton's body was found. He was wearing green camouflage fatigues and carrying a policeman's billy club. Gray is the person who directed Don's father to the shorts and underwear hanging from a tree branch near where she was found. In addition, a pair of girls' underwear was found in the backseat of Gray's car during a consensual search. Now, he had been eliminated as a suspect based on a series of interviews, but still this information should have been provided to the defense and was not. What the Court of Appeals does is order an evidentiary hearing on the issue. So at the hearing on this new trial motion, Detective Bacon was produced as a witness for the prosecution. Now, by this time, he had retired. He testified that his last call had involved searching for Dawn Hamilton, and he was one of the officers who discovered her body. And in the course of that search, Detective Bacon came across Richard Gray. When the detective discovered Gray in the woods, he was very dirty, except his hands were very clean. And he also noticed a red spot on Gray's shirt that he thought was possibly blood. He said Gray appeared quite nervous and vomited during and immediately after the search of his car. The underwear found in his car was that of a small girl. And when Detective Bacon asked for an explanation of the underwear, Gray said he found them in the woods a couple days earlier and was intending to take them home for his wife or daughter. Anyway, Detective Bacon ran a check on Gray and found that he had a criminal conviction for indecent exposure and had been arrested for burglary. He discovered sometime later that Gray failed a police polygraph examination in connection with the Don Hamilton case. Detective Bacon also testified that he took a statement from Gray and that he was dissuaded by his superiors from any further investigation of Gray.
2: Kirk Bloodsworth's retrial began at the end of March 1987, two years after having been convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of nine-year-old Don Hamilton. One big change from the first trial was that Bloodsworth had a new attorney, a man named Leslie Stein, who replaced his public defender. Now, there was an early blow to the prosecution's case, Kath, when witness Nancy Hall, who we talked about in the original trial, ID'd Bloodsworth as the strange man she saw in the neighborhood before the murder. Uh This time she testified that she saw a television news report on Bloodsworth's arrest just days before she picked Bloodsworth out of that police lineup. Ms. Hall also told the jury that she told police this information before viewing the lineup and told the prosecution about it prior to the original trial. It was also brought out that now 14-year-old Christian, one of the boys fishing at the pond, testified at this trial that his mother received $200 in reward money from the apartment complex where the Hamiltons lived after Christian picked Bloodsworth out of the lineup. Now 11-year-old Jackie also admitted his mother received the reward money as well. Now, after two days of testimony, prosecutors Ann Brobst and Michael Pulver rested their case. Defense Attorney Stein sought the dismissal of all charges, saying that the prosecution had not proved their case, stating that the witnesses lacked credibility and there was no physical evidence connecting Bloodsworth to the crime. Now, Judge James Smith did dismiss the rape charge against Bloodsworth, but said there was enough evidence to go forward with the first-degree murder and first-degree sex offense charges. The defense focused on seven new witnesses who testified they saw a youngish blonde man in the area, but it could not have been Bloodsworth because he had bright red hair. Defense attorney Stein also brought forward two former employers who testified that Bloodsworth never gave notice when he left those jobs. This was done to counter the prosecution's theory that Bloodsworth abruptly quit his job several days after Don Hamilton's murder because he was fleeing the area. In addition, the tennis shoe with the distinctive pattern was not introduced, and the defense brought on a medical expert who testified that Dawn could not have been killed by a chunk of concrete striking her head. Now, the biggest defense witness who was not present at the first trial was Richard Gray. This was the other potential suspect investigated by Detective Bacon. Despite being aggressively questioned by attorney Stein, Gray did not provide a smoking gun to either prove Bloodsworth's innocence or Gray's own guilt. And unlike the first trial, Bloodsworth did not testify at this new trial.
1: The six woman, six man jury deliberated for five hours before asking the judge for a definition of circumstantial evidence. Judge Smith reread his instructions and explained them, and the jury went back to deliberate. Cath. Three minutes later, they returned their verdict: guilty. Dawn's mother burst into tears and was hugged by a friend as the verdict was read, and Don's father, who was several seats away from his ex-wife, simply nodded, like he knew this is the verdict that should have happened anyway. Before sentencing eight weeks later, in June of 1987, defense attorney Stein requested a new trial, faulting the police investigators and prosecution once again. Apparently, Kat, there was a report on the news that a 31-year-old iron worker who, on the day of Don's murder, showed up without an appointment at a local health center just a few blocks from where Don was murdered. WBAL-TV reporter Jane Miller covered the Bloodsworth trial and in a lengthy report said the man waited three hours to see a counselor and later vividly described a relationship with a little girl. So apparently the Baltimore County Homicide investigators interviewed the man six months after Bloodsworth was convicted the first time in 1985. But because this man was 20 pounds lighter and four inches shorter than Bloodsworth, detective decided he would not be placed in a new lineup. And the prosecutors did not give this information to attorney Stein until two weeks before the second trial. I feel like they're being really squirrely, to say the least. So defense attorney Stein tells the judge, hey, look, this is ridiculous and it's not right because I only had two weeks. My initial investigation into this guy really went nowhere until an anonymous call a month after the second trial led him to secretaries at the health center who testified that the man's appearance was very close to the composite sketch. And here's the reality. Two weeks before a trial, you are in serious crunch time. That is not enough time to actually do a deep dive into a potential witness. When you're worried about all your existing witnesses and all your existing evidence, it's nothing. That's not enough time. So the judge was upset and he criticized the police and the state's attorney's office, saying he could see the resemblance between this 31 year old iron worker and the composite drawing that Baltimore County police distributed after Don's death. But despite the judge's sentiments, He still refused to grant a new trial, saying even though he was disturbed by the prosecutor's actions and waiting to turn this evidence over, the defense still had two weeks and should have pursued the lead more vigorously which I find, frankly, absurd. But anyway, that's just me on a side note.
2: You know, based on the fact that the first trial was overturned because of what I would deem prosecutorial misconduct, but any sort of squirrely behavior like this, I don't know why I'm talking about squirrels today, but (laughs) any kind of squirrely behavior, you would think the new judge would want to just be like, no, this is straightforward. You did this wrong. We're done. It's not even the new judge. It's the prosecutor. The judge should have looked at the prosecutor and been like, you're doing this again? I know. But at the same time,
1: like, why is the prosecutor in this situation? Same prosecutors at both trials, by the way. Okay, but we don't know where the snafu occurred. Like, there's so many things that could happen. Like, did new detectives come on the scene? Why was this discovery not given up? Was the discovery given up and the prosecutors fell asleep? I, I don't know. Judge Hinkle then sentenced Kirk Bloodsworth to two life terms to run consecutively. And his attorney filed another appeal to throw out the conviction and order a new trial, a third trial. Within a year, the Court of Special Appeals, which is Maryland's highest court, rejected all appellate arguments. Kirk Bloodsworth, who was no longer on death row, remained in the penitentiary serving his life sentences.
2: So four years later, Kirk Bloodsworth was working in the prison library when he opened a package of books that had been donated to the prison. One caught his attention, The Blooding" by Joseph Wambaugh. It is the true story of the rapes and murders of two teenage girls that happened three years apart in the small English village of Narborough. It was also the very first time DNA was used in a criminal case. So the book was written in 1989. It, it was a nonfiction.
1: Normally, Joseph Wambaugh, who was an LAPD officer in real life back in the day, takes his experiences and writes about, you know, writes fictional fiction. versions. I love I love this guy. My favorite one of his books was called Lines and Shadows. But I loved this nonfictional piece, The Blooding. And so these two girls were brutally raped and murdered, like you said, three years apart. And I believe it was an English geneticist along with two others. And I can't remember specifically who basically started this idea of DNA fingerprinting. So what happens is these scientists realize you can identify people specifically with bodily fluid. They compare the semen samples on the two murder victims and they realize it's the same killer. So this is a small village and they ask every single man to donate blood. And they sample like 4,000 people. So one of the guys, police finds out, asks somebody else to donate blood on his behalf.
2: I recall he was in a pub bragging. Exactly.
1: They find out who he is. They ask him to donate his blood. And sure enough, he's the killer. And I I had to refresh my recollection about the book, but I remember reading it and thinking that the killer had a horrible name. And so his name was Colin Pitchfork. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, man, you sound like a killer.
2: Not quite as bad as Furbush, but I'm wondering if both of those put them in like specific uh, (laughs) occupations. (laughs)
1: Anyway, great book. Highly recommend it. And so Bloodsworth reads this book and he's inspired by it.
2: Right. After he read it, he believed that this same forensic technique could be used to prove his innocence once and for all. This whole time, all of these years, he had been insisting that he was innocent and everybody was wrong. Right. So he wrote a letter to Ann Bropst. This is the assistant state's attorney who prosecuted both of his trials. And he told her about what he'd learned in the Joseph Wambaugh book and asked her if she would do the test of the evidence that they had in the case. Well, several months went by before he received a written response from Prosecutor Brobst. She stated that the DNA in the Don Hamilton case had been inadvertently destroyed. But he kept pursuing this. He began a letter writing campaign, writing to as many lawyers as he could telling them about this new DNA technique and asking them to help him find out if the evidence had actually been destroyed. He sent one of the letters to a federal prosecutor, and of all the letters he sent, this prosecutor was the only one who wrote back to him. He told Bloodsworth that he couldn't represent him, but he would put him in touch with a private attorney. So several months later, attorney Bob Morin agreed to take Bloodsworth's case pro bono. And interestingly, Kathy, Morin is now a D.C. judge. Mm
1: -hmm, I saw that.
2: So for Bloodsworth, though, this was like hitting the lottery. So, Kathy, there's a documentary that I saw on Amazon. It's called Bloodsworth. Mm -hmm. And in it, he tells the story of what happened with this new attorney. Bloodsworth was on the phone with Morin, and they were talking about this evidence potentially being destroyed. And Morin told Bloodsworth, I've already checked for it twice. I've looked around different places in in the evidence room. Couldn't find it. And Bloodsworth said to him, please go check it just a third time. Like, we just got to make sure. So Morin agreed, went for a third time, again looked high and low in the evidence room, and didn't find anything in the Don Hamilton case. According to Bloodsworth in this documentary, as Morin was leaving the evidence room, he passed by a friend who happened to clerk for Judge Smith. This was the judge at Bloodsworth's second trial. His friend asked Morin what he was up to, and Morin told him that he was looking for evidence in the Hamilton case, but hadn't been able to find anything. And the friend looked at Morin and said, um, I can help you. I know exactly where it is. The law clerk took Morin into Judge Smith's chambers and showed Morin the evidence box, which was in Judge Smith's closet. OK, this is so interesting to me because I don't
1: know how this could happen. Any of it. I know. And so obviously it's part of a documentary that you saw. But in my mind, I'm like, why would a judge have a box of evidence in his chambers four years after trial? How come that box was not put back in the evidence room? And then the second question I have on the story is like, where was the Baltimore County evidence room? Now, it could have been in the same courthouse at the time, but the whole thing is interesting to me. I know that we're missing pieces of this puzzle in the story, but the reality is after checking three times, however he did it, this guy comes up with the box of evidence. Typically, people can't just walk through the evidence room. It's not like a library where you get to go check things. It's very, very secure. I know that many police departments are often next door to courthouses. Maybe back then they were in the same building. I have no idea. Maybe this lawyer walked through with a police officer. I don't know. But he couldn't have just strolled into an evidence room to check things out unless he had special access somehow. And then finding the box of evidence in the judge's chamber. The only thing I'm thinking of is once the trial was wrapped up, the clerk of the court put that box away somewhere and it just never made its way back to evidence. I just find the whole thing bizarre, but thank God it was found.
2: Right. Attorney Morin paid for all of the DNA testing. And when the DNA came back, we're now at April 27, 1993, it showed that the DNA excluded Bloodsworth as the perpetrator. After the FBI confirmed the results, which was two months to the day after they had received the results back, Bloodsworth was released from prison. He had spent eight years, 10 months, and 19 days in prison, two of those years spent on death row. Kirk Bloodsworth became the first U.S. death row prisoner to be cleared by DNA.
1: Okay, so Kath, you know what's so interesting when somebody gets cleared by DNA? You start reviewing all the information in your head that you heard about the case. And
2: what sticks out where there might have been a problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so the very first detective, I want to say it was Detective Capel, Mm -hmm. testified in the first trial that Kirk Bloodsworth somehow brought up this piece of concrete after the officer had placed the little girl's underwear on the table.
2: Right. And it was in this documentary, as we talked about, that Kirk Bloodsworth said, Detective Capel placed both of those items in front of me, but Detective Capel only testified to placing the underwear there. But this interview was not videoed or recorded. Now, Bloodsworth's dad and family were there to celebrate with him. But sadly, his mother, who never wavered in her belief that he was 100 percent innocent, passed away five months before he was released from prison. Now, six months after he was released, then Maryland Governor William Schaefer granted Kirk Bloodsworth a full pardon based on innocence.
1: After Bloodsworth was released from prison, the state of Maryland paid him $300,000 for lost income based on the rough calculation that he would have earned $30,000 a year for the years from his arrest to his release. Nine years later, in the spring of 2003, a Baltimore County forensic biologist who was studying evidence from the case found stains on a sheet that had not been analyzed. So investigators test the sheet. They find DNA and they run it through CODIS, you know, the FBI's database. There they find a match. It was to a man named Kimberly Shay Ruffner, and he was a current inmate in the Maryland Penitentiary. As it turns out, Ruffner arrived in prison just a month after Bloodsworth and was located directly below Bloodsworth's cell. Now, remember, Bloodsworth is a librarian. He regularly delivers books to Ruffner, and the two of them had lifted weights together. Bloodsworth freaking learned the news that this guy was the actual killer. Can you imagine? No. Because I'm sure Ruffner knew what Bloodsworth was in for. Everybody knows about a baby killer. Exactly. Yeah. Ruffner was formally charged with the crime on September 5th, 2003. The year after that, There was a federal Justice for All Act signed under President George W. Bush that authorized the establishment of the Kirk Bloodsworth Post-Conviction DNA Testing Grant Program. So this program provides $10 million a year to help states defray the costs associated with post-conviction DNA testing.
2: After his exoneration, Bloodsworth began working with Witness to Innocence, advocating to abolish the death penalty and addressing wrongful convictions. This is the only national organization in the U.S. that's composed of and led by exonerated death row survivors and their family members. Their mission is to abolish the death penalty. And Kath, what's interesting is that Bloodsworth does talk at a lot of events. He testifies before state houses, all of these things. And every single time he speaks in public, he wears the same exact tie. It is a dark tie that has the DNA double helix all over it. Oh, that
1: is so cool. I know. I love that. Tell us you love DNA testing without telling us you love DNA testing. (laughs)
2: Efforts by Witness to Innocence were influential in eight of the nine states that have abolished the death penalty in the last 25 years. And in fact, Maryland was one of those states. They abolished the death penalty in 2013. So in 2021, Bloodsworth was awarded an additional $421,000 plus based on a new recalculation of the economic losses he suffered because of his wrongful conviction. Nice. One year later, he was awarded an additional $83,000 for housing. So, Kirk Bloodsworth currently lives in Pennsylvania and continues to work with Witness to Innocence, serving as its executive director from 2018 to 2022.
1: In May of 2004, Kimberly Shay Ruffner pled guilty to the murder of Don Hamilton in exchange for life in prison. He was already serving a 45-year sentence for burglary, attempted rape, and assault, And for that conviction, he was eligible for parole at the age of 73. At that time, his life sentence will kick in for Dawn's murder. So Mr. Ruffner will be in prison the rest of his life. Thanks for listening.
2: If you haven't had a chance yet, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Only if it's good, though. That's right. And
1: we're dead serious about that. Otherwise, Kathy's
2: (laughs) coming after you. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, follow us on all of our socials at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Killer Destinations Pod on TikTok.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.